The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Luke chapter 16. And then when you get there, and I'm still debating it, but we might go to Ezekiel 34 also. So plan ahead and we'll see. But uh, Luke chapter 16 is where we're going to be today. Y'all doing good? Everybody's doing well? Nice. You were singing loud this morning. It sounded awesome. Thanks for that. Luke 16. I'm going to give you something to kind of think about to have sort of in the back of your mind too as we're doing this. Um, This always gets me an email. Please don't send me an email, but whatever. Um, whenever I talk about a movie that they're like, oh, that doesn't sound like a churchy movie. But and I also won't ask you to raise your hands to see if you've seen it or not, because everyone's seen it, but I know we're in church, so no one's going to admit that they've seen it, so let's just pretend like we do, right? But uh, there's this movie called The Sixth Sense that none of us watched, I'm sure. And in the movie The Sixth Sense, I don't know if you've seen it by now. If you haven't, you've had a long time, so I'm just going to go ahead and say it anyway. Bruce Willis is dead. That's the surprise in the whole movie. If you haven't seen it and you're like, what? You've had like 20 years. Get over it. So, um, so Bruce Willis is dead. And at the end of the movie, you find it out. You don't know it until the very end of the movie that this whole time he's been a ghost. And then they show all these little scenes and snippets of things that have been happening all along in the movie. You just didn't know he was dead. And when you see the scenes then compared to when you had seen them in the first point, it's different, isn't it? Like you watch it differently because now that you know what's really going on, you look back at the stuff that happened before and you're like, oh, oh, oh. And then from then on, the rest of the time that you ever watch that movie again, not that any of you ever would watch that movie, but the next time that you ever watch, it's not that bad, it's just kind of creepy, but the the next time that you go in and you watch that movie again, now you're watching it, it's like you can't unsee that, you know what I mean? Now you're watching everything going, oh, I know, that's funny that he said right there. The director uh, slipped that in right there. And and you start kind of deciphering the movie all the rest of the time with the end in mind, right? And so knowing the end, it affects the way you see things as you go. So I, I want you to just plant that in the back of your mind for just a minute. Knowing the end, knowing what's coming, knowing if we knew the end... How would you go about things if you're certain about what's coming up? I I tell you, so last night, my daughter had her uh, 12th birthday party. My youngest daughter had her 12th birthday party, and she wanted to do an outdoor movie night. So I gave them the sixth sense, and I'm kidding. We did not, (laughs) I did not let 12-year-olds watch a horror movie. Um, No, um, they watched some Disney movie, but, but we did like a projector thing out in the backyard and got some speakers and rented a screen and did kind of the whole thing out there. And, and as the kids were all just showing up, uh, my oldest daughter was playing music through her iPad that was going through these big stereo speakers that we had set up there in the backyard. And so it was like super loud. We're never loud in our neighborhood. And my wife's like, oh my gosh, it's loud. We should turn it down. And I'm like, we have been quiet for like 10 years. We can be loud one night. Just let them party and have a good time. And so, uh, so I'm inside, you know, um, like a good dad at his daughter's birthday party watching football. And, um, and at a certain point, I kind of turn around and look outside as the music's playing, and there's this full-blown dance party going on out there. And it was great and 
devastating at the same time because I'm like, this isn't like the little kid's party anymore. Like she's becoming this young woman and they're out there doing dance moves from song videos and all this kind of stuff. And I had like this moment and I've been thinking about it a little bit this weekend, like my time with her is getting more and more limited every single day. And the day is coming that she won't be in my house anymore. The day is coming that every day when I come home, she won't run to, to me as I come in and give daddy a kiss like she does every single time that she sees me. The day is coming when that won't happen. So what's really important then now? Like, what, how do I handle that? Do I just go, oh, well, it'll get here. It's just, it's just inevitable, but I'll just keep doing things the same. Or is that something that you stop and you go, I should think about this. I should ponder on this. I should strategize about this. That's kind of what's going on in this text, which is one of the weirdest texts in the whole book of Luke. It's complicated. It seems like Jesus is praising someone for cheating. And he's shady as all get out, the guy we're going to talk about in this text. He is. And it seems like Jesus is saying to Christians, hey, Christians, be like that guy who's cheating. Like, it's a really complicated text, but I think it's a whole lot more than that. I think what he's really saying is, hey, live with the end in mind. You know what's coming. You, you know your destiny. You know about this kingdom that I've been talking about all this time, and it's for real, and it's coming. So if you know that's coming, and you know that's real, maybe you should be shrewd about the way that you live your life. Maybe, the, maybe you should think about this stuff and about how you navigate things with that end in mind. Okay? So if you're sleepy, you just got the one point of the entire sermon, and you'll be okay if you fall asleep. The rest of you, let's track with me and let's dive into this text. Um, we're going to start out by understanding, because like I said, this is tricky, this one. Um, we want to start out by understanding who's there. Remember, we here at Heritage, we believe that these stories are absolutely 100% true. They actually happened. Every name, every person, these are real people and real moments in time. And so Jesus is here, the Son of God in the flesh who absolutely exists. And he's here talking with a group of people. And we're going to get access to this dialogue as he's talking. So to understand what he's saying and why this is important, it's good for us to understand who is he actually even talking to. And so there's two groups of people that are there. It starts off in verse 1 of Luke 16 and it says, and he said, he also said to his disciples. So his disciples are there. These are the followers of Jesus that believe that he is the Son of God, believe he's the Messiah, believe he's the King, and they have committed their lives. They've given up everything to follow him. They love Jesus. They believe in Jesus, and he's teaching them. And really about right now, Jesus is sort of done with everybody else. Now, he's, he's going to talk to this other group in a second, but his emphasis with just about everyone else that's around is sort of over. He's now going to really focus on the disciples because he knows what's coming. He knows that he's headed to the cross. He knows that he's not going to be there forever. And so knowing that, he's now taking this time to do what we refer to in the church as discipleship. He's taking these guys, these disciples, these followers, and he's teaching them what he wants them to do after he's gone because he knows that time is getting closer and closer and closer. We're only a few chapters away now from the beginning of the crucifixion narratives. So, so he knows this is coming. And so he's really now like dialed in his focus on these followers. And so he's speaking to them, but they're not the only people there. 
there's other people in the room. Because if you fast forward a little bit to verse 14, you see it says, And the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. So the Pharisees, again, if you haven't been traveling with us, those are the religious leaders at the time. These are, are Israel's priests and, and, and the, the, if you will, the shepherds of Israel is a phrase that we're going to probably come back to, assuming I do actually go into Ezekiel. We'll see how we do. But um, these are the ones that, that God had given charge of being mediators between God's people and God himself, of being the ones who are shepherding, caring for the flock, being really sort of a... a Um, a real life manifestation of who God is for the people that are there. And so they're there and they're listening. And uh, if you haven't been tracking with us, I'll just catch you up really fast. They don't like Jesus and he doesn't seem to be too fond of them either. And I don't mean like, well, Jesus loves some people and hates some people. He, He, you might say he hates what they've become because they are nothing like what they're supposed to be. And in fact, instead of pointing people to God and leading people to them and caring for them, they're actually kind of uh, building their own following. It's all become about them. And, and, and they, as a result, they're leading people even to damnation because people aren't learning who God is. They're just learning how to live for things like acclaim and money and position and all of that kind of stuff. And so they're there and they're listening. And they've been listening for a long time as we've gone through the different stories, the prodigal son story, all these different things. They've been there and they've been hearing this stuff about the kingdom of God over and over and over, but they're not buying in. They're listening not to learn, they're listening to criticize, which we've all done that. Maybe some of you are doing that even right now, just sitting here going, all right, I'm going to hear what this guy has to say, but you watch and see, he's going to say something goofy. And that is an absolute guarantee. But I'm saying like, you're, you're listening not because your heart's actually open to hear that God might actually say something to you, but you might be listening just to go, I'm going to pick it apart because I think this is garbage. I think what he stands for is garbage. I think what that book is is garbage. And I'm only here because mom made me, but watch, they're going to say something. Like there, there's no opportunity, there's no open-mindedness. Anything. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're looking to just destroy Jesus and get him out of there. And the disciples are here to learn and to grow, and they believe in this stuff. So, so that's who's here. And Jesus starts this parable, this story that he's using to teach his guys by using the phrase, a certain rich man. So we're going to end up again talking about money. Please lock the doors. Everybody stay in your seats. Listen. You go, oh, nah, I knew it. That's the thing I'm going to pick apart. Here it is. The pastor's talking about money. Um, I'm not going to talk about money. Jesus is going to talk about money, and I'm going to talk about Jesus and what he says. So if you're upset with that, take it up with Jesus. He listens when we pray. But Luke's really concerned with money. Um, Six different times in his narratives, he starts a parable by saying there was a certain rich man. And oh, by the way, Luke's writing this whole thing that we're reading. This is a historical account that Luke put together for someone else who is a rich man. And Luke is investigating these things on his behalf to see if it's true. And so Luke's writing to a really wealthy man, a real man of prominence named Theophilus. And he's saying to him, listen, I'm writing these things so that you can know with certainty that this is true. And I always love the way that he uses those words. It's this, this word asphaleon. It means like so that you can know it's true in the same way that if you're standing on a mountain, you know it's real. Not, not like a cloud that you can't really grab. It's not real tangible. You try to grab it and it just sort of comes through your hand, but something tangible and real that you might know like Mount Shasta is a mountain that this is real. So he's 
concerned about someone of wealth and someone of resources because that's, that's who he's writing to. But it's not just that Luke is concerned about it. Jesus clearly is too because like I said, six different times Jesus starts a parable by saying there was a certain rich man. But what I want you to understand too is that this is way more than a money thing. Like go back to that idea of living with the end in mind. That's really the emphasis here. So let me show you. So he says to the disciples, verse 1, there was a certain rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possession. The, the text here, there's a, the, the word manager, it's this Greek word, ekonomos. It's, a, it's the idea of you have someone who works for you and, and his job is to just run and manage everything. Um, he runs your books. He's in charge of your staff. His job is to take care of everything that's yours. Everything of yours has been entrusted to him and his job's to run it. So in other words, key points to understand. The things he's taking care of do not belong to him. He's a steward. It's his job to manage and take care of the things that are owned by the master, right? So those of you that have been tracking with these texts already, you can kind of see here's what's happening. You can, you can already see some of this narrative, this parallel starting to come to play right out the gate. There's a guy who is a manager or a steward. We're going to use the word steward. He just, in other words, it's your job to just take care of my stuff. And this ma- master gets word that this steward is doing things unjustly. He's wasting his possessions. He's not doing a good job of taking care of the things that have been entrusted to him. And so he calls this guy into account. Verse 2, he called to him and said, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. So this is called pink slip day, right? Um, he hears that he's been failing in his job, and he calls him in, and he's like, okay, you're, you're canned, you're fired. But, but it's, it's even more than that. So first of all, when he says, turn in your account of management, he doesn't just mean hand the books over and let me see what you've done. It's, more, it's bigger than that. It's him calling the guy in and saying, hey, listen, explain yourself. Not just drop the stuff off and leave, but by the way, when you come to explain yourself, though, do bring the keys. That's what's happening here. And so this guy is, is having to give an account for all of these things that he's been running the entire time. And his failure there is cause for dismissal from the master. You all tracking with me on this? Um, so he's been given the keys, but there, there's, there's sort of this element of like, um, you're fired. I want you to go get your office in order, get those other books in order, close out those accounts or those books, whatever the case may be, bring the keys and you're done. So like he's fired, but there's still like this little window of duty, you might say, for the guy to actually take on. So as you look at it, take it in verse three, the manager, so the steward, said to himself, so we get this little internal dialogue, what shall I do? Since my master is taking management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. Okay, so this dude is white collar as it gets, right? He has no skills anywhere else. He's too weak to pick up a shovel or join a work crew. He doesn't know how to bang nails. He has no idea how to do anything else, but he's so white collar. He's way too proud to humble himself and do any of these other kind of jobs. And he's, he's having this inner monologue like a lot of people have when they find out they're about to lose their job. He's like, man, what, what am I going to do? 
I've lost my job. My ability to provide for myself is gone. My future right now has been thrown into chaos. And if you're someone who deals with anxiety, you know how that goes. You go, every worst case scenario is the one that your mind starts tracking. At no point do you go, oh, but I'll probably find a better job and be fine. Like that never happens, right? Instead, what are you thinking? I'm going to be destitute. I'm going to be standing on the side of the road with a sign. Good thing I have a dog. People give more money at red lights to people with dogs. But um, I, what, you know what I mean? Like you're going through all these worst case scenarios and you're like, what in the world am I going to do? And his future looks certainly terrible, right? Until verse 4. And this is in, in the Greek language. We don't have it here in the English translation. But in the Greek language, there's like a, oh, It's like a a really emphatic, like he gets this idea. Aha, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. He's like, I got a plan. And because of this plan, I know what I'll do because I'm going to be homeless. Yes, I'm going to be unemployed. Yes, but if I do this, people will take me into their houses and I'll be okay. So what's his plan? And just to give you a heads up again, this dude is shady. Okay, and we have to clarify that because it sort of looks in a minute like Jesus is commending or recommending that we do what this guy does. And that's going to, if you guys take that and go, oh, sweet, then I can do this at work and this at work and this at work. Um, I'm just telling you right now, it's shady. You're going to end up in church discipline. You're going to be excommunicated from the church. It's going to be really bad. So don't do that, right? This guy's shady. But here it goes, verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. Okay, so pause. The guy's got all these different accounts out there. People, accounts payable, you might say. There's people out here that owe his master money, and his job was supposed to be to steward all this stuff anyway, right? So he knows about these accounts. He knows who owes money. So he calls up one of the dudes that owes money. He's like, hey, hey, how much is it again that you owe my master? And the guy says, I owe him a hundred measures of oil, which in, in that day, that's a big debt. That's at least a year's worth of salary. Um, some say it's as many as 150 trees. Like if you took 150 olive trees... And, and you did the whole, the process they do where they make olive oil, where they mash them, they do all the whole thing, that 150 trees, this is how much oil would come out of that. By the way, ignore the flashes. That, I forgot that we were doing this today. We're actually redoing our website, and they needed some new pictures and all this kind of stuff. They're like, we need to do some photo editing because we can't put these ugly pictures of you up there. So they'll, they'll deal with that later. Just ignore that. Okay, so 100 measures of oil. This is one year's salary, huge debt. And he's like, okay, then here's what we're going to do. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. He just cuts the guy's bill in half. Goes from a full year, let's say, worth of money owed to half. He just just cuts the master's bill in half and says, now you only owe this. And then he said to another, he calls someone else, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. Now this is even more. Uh, They they say that this is is so significant, this would have taken about a hundred acres of land to produce enough wheat to fill that 100 measures Uh, it could be anywhere from several to even as many as 10 years worth of salary this is a massive bill here and what does he say to him um he said to him take your bill and write 80 so not the same ratio but it's a much bigger bill huge cut he drops it down to 80 percent of what the original bill was this is what he does. Now, 
if this is what your recently or in the process of being fired employee did for you, what would you do? Would you call security and have him escorted from the premises? Would you call the police and say, this guy is taking advantage of me, he's costing me money? What would you do? It seems like, man, now I I don't just want to fire him, I sort of want to kill him. But look what happens, and and this is where it gets complicated. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And this is where it gets kind of tricky. So to clarify, in verse 8, it says clearly he's referred to as what kind of manager? Dishonest. So, So the things that he did are literally and clearly in Scripture marked as being dishonest. It means unjust or, or literally unrighteous. So his actions are unjust. They're dishonest. Um, so then why would he praise? Now, a lot of people, when they get to some of these kind of things, we, we want to try to sanitize it a little because we don't like the, the seeming conflict that, well, man, it, it looks like they're praising a guy for cheating. So, so what does it happen? Well, some people have said that, that this guy went and reduced those debts because he knew to those people it would make his master look generous. And then if he did all this kind of stuff, the master would realize, man, suddenly people really, really like me. Well, I can't fire him now. Look at all the praise he brought me. But that would seem weird because, first of all, it it's, seems to be pretty clear that he's not cutting these debts on behalf of the master. He even says, I'm going to do this so that they'll take me in. And he's obviously the one that is cutting them himself for his own advantage. Some say that the reduction was a reduction in interest. Um, in, is, in, if you guys know your Old Testament law, you know that they weren't allowed to lend money um, and charge interest at the same time. They weren't really supposed to do that. But in this culture, people did it all the time. And so some have said, oh, then what he's doing is he's going in and he's just taking the interest off of the account and making it the way it really should be in the first place. And, and the, the manager seeing this and realizes, oh, he's making a righteous move now, which would be fine, except for the fact that the Bible clearly calls it an unrighteous move that's actually taking place here, not a righteous one. Um, and another really common one is some people say, well, this was the, the steward's commission. Like this is the money that he would have gotten out of those accounts on his own commission. And so he's cutting those so that uh, um, just to be generous and stuff. But again, unrighteous, not generous. So none of those seem to square with just what a plain reading of the text would actually say. So we look at this. The Bible clearly says that his actions are unjust or unrighteous. It calls him an unjust, unrighteous man. But the master in the parable praises him. So what is it that he's praising? Um, I believe that the master is not praising his actions, but, but his shrewdness. And so shrewdness literally meaning this, um, acting with great practical intelligence. And you go, so, so what, what does that mean? Because his intelligence led him to do some bad things. M- maybe, maybe, but, but this is the idea. Um, it's almost like to put it in sort of a, a corporate mindset, this, is, this comes from, I think it was Tim Keller said this, the scene to put in modern terms is that of a recently terminated middle manager who double deals with company debtors on the main floor of corporate headquarters while his CEO sits in the boardroom upstairs. And when the CEO learns what's happened, he says in admiring disbelief, I got to hand it to you, you've turned a pink slip into a promotion. It, it, it's like he's hearing what's going on and he's going, I can't agree with what you did, but dude, you took action. 
there was a real thing going on. It was a pretty brilliant play on your part, and uh, I got to hand it to you, that was pretty shrewd. It was shady as all get out, but it was pretty shrewd. Well, what might that mean? I, I think this is what he's talking about. Think about what Jesus has been teaching his disciples and teaching all of these guys all along. We had the parable of the barren fig tree in Luke 13. We had lament over Jerusalem where Jesus mourned over the fact that Jerusalem does not understand who their Messiah is, that their king has come, and it's like as if they've missed it. We get to the healing on the Sabbath where they miss it, and then he goes into the parable of the wedding feast about the fact that the Messiah is gathering all of his people together, and these invites are going on, and people are missing it. There's this constant um, flow of teaching from Jesus, uh, not just to his disciples, but to the scribes and Pharisees who, remember, know the Bible or the Scriptures better than anyone and in them he's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand the kingdom of heaven is at hand the kingdom of heaven is at hand here comes this kingdom and though they keep hearing about this and they keep hearing about the reality of what is to come they're not doing anything about it they're just like oh whatever I'll just keep living my own life the way it is I'm really more interested in how things are right now and so they have no desire to go oh something's happening, therefore I need to actually sit and think and calculate. If that's coming and that's true, what should I do now with regards to that? And the dishonest manager, at least to his credit, stopped and thought, we get his internal monologue where he's sitting there and he's like, I'm in trouble. Something, I I gotta do something because the end that is now guaranteed for me because of what has happened, I've got to do something about it. And my, my unrighteousness is setting me up for a place where I'm going to have real bad future and I'm going to be, um, uh, removed from the presence of the master. I've got to do something. And so he was shrewd in the sense that he stopped, he thought, He calculated and he believed that with that certain end in mind, how do I navigate life at this point moving forward? And the second half of verse 8 is what sort of explains that. So I I remember um, if you study Bible interpretation, uh, when the original authors were writing the Bible, so when Luke was writing this, he didn't write it by going verse 7, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, 8. like the way that it is in our Bibles. Um, Modern translators did that really just to help us kind of sort some of it out and be able to refer back to things and all that kind of stuff. But but the, the, the actual verse breaks are not, if you will, spiritually inspired. They're, they're just there as a handy tool. And most of the time they're super handy. Sometimes they're not. This is one of those cases where it's sort of not. Because in the middle of verse 8, there's actually a break. So halfway through verse 8, the story ends and Jesus' commentary or or, um, interpretation or the lesson of Jesus begins. Does that make sense? So as you're reading through verse 8 here in Luke chapter 16... Jesus is telling the story, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Stop. Now the story's over. So now Jesus, and it begins with this word for, which the Greek word here is a conjunction that's like going into a a, a therefore or a a so listen. So, So Jesus is now moving into the story's over and he's talking about what the story means and the implications of the story to his disciples. And what is it that he says in verse 8? 
For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And that's a real stinging commentary. This is what he's saying. Even a guy like that, speaking of the steward in the story, even a guy like that is, is at least shrewd enough to stop and think and go, knowing what's coming, I better make some decisions now and understand it. Even a guy like that stops and plans and strategizes, believes in what's to come, and actually tries to do things in the meantime to position himself to be in a better off position when he gets there. Even he does that. But remember, who else is in the room listening? These guys that have been hearing over and over and over and over, the Messiah is here, the kingdom is at hand. The Messiah is here, the kingdom is at hand, and they change nothing. They just sit there. They, they are not shrewd in any way. They don't at any point go, with this being the case, what shall I do now? What do I do about this? And there's a lot of Christians that are like that. There's a lot of people who are believers in Jesus Christ, and, and we've been given a, a window into a very certain destiny that the Scriptures tell us about. But there's a lot of people who lack any shrewdness at all in the sense that to stop and go, if that's true, what do I do about it now? If it's true that my daughter who just turned 12 is going to be out of the house in as many as six years, which seems like nothing, if it's really true that that's going to happen, shouldn't that affect the way I choose to spend time with her now? Shouldn't that affect uh, my mentality to go, man, there's so many things that I need, I haven't even taught her, or time I've spent with her, there's so many things I need to get across to her. Like at some point, shouldn't I even just try to stop and be shrewd and think, with that being the case, how do I steward my life with my daughter, my resources with my family, my time with my little girl, all of those kind of things. What do I do about that because the end's coming? Or do I just go, it's inevitable and it's much more fun to just be about me. So I'll just keep rolling the same way I always have. This is what he's saying. The sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. He's saying this dishonest manager spent more time planning on his future than people who understand the reality of the other future that's really to come. Verse 9, he says this, which also seems a little weird, but listen to it. He says in verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. That seems like a weird phrase. So, unrighteous money, use it to make a lot of friends. Like, Kinda. <laughs> Here's what he's saying. What did the shrewd manager do? He used what was available to him in the last moment to go, okay, I'm going to do these things so that these people are going to look at me well. I'm going to make friends through this. And that way, when that future comes, which is about to happen, when I am unemployed and have no income and I don't know what I'm going to do with myself, I can go to those guys' house and knock on the door and go, hey, um, remember that time? I came by and saved you like five years of income. So uh, I need a place to stay. Like that's what he's doing. But Jesus is saying something along the same lines, but slightly different. So a couple of things to understand. First of all, when he says it, when he says, I tell you, again, in the Greek language, this is a real emphasis. He's like, guys, listen. It's like he's told the story and he, he's given sort of the accusation at the end of verse 8. And now he's going, but listen, 
you've got to hear this. Like it's a real emphasis here. Second of all, when he says make friends by means of unrighteous wealth, that seems weird. People go, that seems weird. It's like Jesus is saying, use these things that are unrighteous and use them to your advantage to make friends. That, what, what is it that he's talking about here? Um, in this context, unrighteous wealth does not necessarily mean or does not only mean money that was obtained unrighteously. So, so that's how we would tend to look at it. Unrighteous wealth, oh, you like, like stolen stuff? Like, like kind of like what the dishonest manager did. So like, should I go into my business and like cheat the books? But, but as long as I use that money to go make friends, it's okay. Like, what is it that he's saying? No, no, no. Unrighteous in that context also means um, something that is untrustworthy. So something that you put your trust and your, your faith in apart from God, according to scripture, whatever it is, gains the label of unrighteous. And so he's saying these things that people trust in unrighteously. And we, we get, I'm going to fast forward here, we get a little window into this because in verse 13, if you look down, it says, um, you cannot serve God and money. Um, there's another translation of that that many of your Bibles may actually say, uh, no one can trust or serve God and, do you know what the word is? Mammon, right? Mammon. What is that word mammon? Well, that word derives from the Hebrew word amon, which is from what we get the word amen, and it literally means to place trust in. So that's a word that was even used to reference or represent even income or money at that time. Why? Because what is more easy for us to put our trust in than money? Like, what's the one thing that all of us, no matter where we are, if we were really being honest, we would say, yeah, life's okay, but it would probably be a little bit easier if I just had a little more of that. It, almost anyone would say, I, I've never heard anybody goes, no, I'm good on money, I don't need any more of that. I've never met that guy. And, and it's, a, it's a real temptation, right? Because it would seem that just enough money could get me out of all my problems. If I just had enough money, I could quit that job over there that's stressing me out. If I just had enough money, I could buy that bill. If I just had enough money, I wouldn't have to worry about my car or the kid's college bill. It, there's this temptation to believe that if we just had enough money, that it would just make all of life a whole lot easier, and that would be the thing that is going to provide for us. The problem is, money fails, it, it just does. Jesus even says here in the very text, doesn't he? He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, not if, so that when it fails, money always fails. It's not like if, it always does. You know, well, how, how is it that money fails us? Well, um, there's a couple of different ways that just easily right off the top of our heads here. Um, first of all, there's the Ecclesiastes version where Solomon writing in Ecclesiastes um, says something to the effect of, I tasted of all the wealth and all the pleasures that the world had to provide, and in the end, I was still thirsty. Like this idea of, man, I chased it all, I bought it all, I experienced it all, and there were pleasures. He calls them pleasures. Like there was joy in all of those kinds of things. But at the end of the night, when I laid my head down on my pillow, my heart was not fulfilled. I still felt empty. It did not satisfy the longing that I had here. At best, it distracted me from the reality that the longing was there, but it didn't fix them. 
But most of us don't experience that part, right? <laughs> most of us, honestly, like that's real and maybe that's you. God bless you if it is, man. Lean on that, right? Most of us don't experience that. I've got enough money to experience everything and it just hadn't satisfied me. At least not me. So what else is there? Well, there's the other one where you end up losing it all and end up with nothing. You just, it's just gone. Like stock market, uh, bad stewardship, uh, stolen, whatever the case may be. And so there's a lot of people who have been through that, who had a lot of money and thought they were going to be secure. And the next thing they know, it was just gone. And all that security that they had before completely vanished. And they found out, man, that money could not guarantee me a future, no matter how much of it I had. It doesn't guarantee anything. It's just a thing. It's, a, it's not that money's bad. It's just that it's a really bad God. And it just didn't do anything for me. And that's true. But also, most of us don't really experience that either. Most people don't lose everything and learn that lesson about money or things like that because of that. Most of us find it out, honestly, this way. It is simple as it seems. It's just the truth. Most of us have it, die, and realize it didn't get us anywhere in the end. That's just the reality of it. I've done memorial services for rich people. I've done memorial services for poor people. I've seen the same amount of cash in the casket. None. It just doesn't last. And the thing that Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples and to us through this text is that we actually do. And that to only go for something that stays in this little window of time and give no concern whatsoever for that that's on the other side of that line is is foolish. It's a bad God. So he's saying, so use it now. Use that unrighteous mammon. But notice how he says it, though. Make friends for yourself. And he's using the analogy of what this this unrighteous guy just did. But he says, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What's What's he saying? He's just saying this. The stuff that you have now, whatever it is, Use it and be shrewd about it, knowing that this end is absolutely coming. But don't use it in some sort of like hedonistic way to say, I might as well enjoy everything now because the end's coming. He's saying, no, no, that's actually not the end. And you need to be shrewd to know that there's an eternity on the other side of this. So start investing with that in mind. Live with the end in mind. Think about the things that you're doing. Don't place your trust in money. Use it as a tool to actually serve the master because the master is coming. You're going to be in his presence one day and that, that end is real. Are you guys tracking with me on that? Does that make sense in what he's saying? And so he gives some further commentary on that here as he goes on. Uh, verse 10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you in true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is of your own? And we could spend a lot of time on this, but we've, honestly, we've covered some of these things recently. Just the idea is this. The things that we have now are not ours. A, a Christian does not have um, an actual understanding, or, or we should not have a worldview of ownership for ourselves. A, a Christian understands we're not owners, we're stewards. And the things that we have belong to the master. And so we've been entrusted with certain things, and one day we will be before the master and we will give account. No one wants to think about that. What, what feels a whole lot better as a Christian is to go, 
No, no, judgment is about judgment under condemnation and sin and all that stuff. And because I'm in Christ, I don't have to experience that. So we're just going to tap dance right into the kingdom and we don't have to worry about anything else. And you forget all the other passages in the scriptures where, where uh, guys like Paul are writing to the church and saying, remember, you will give account before God one day. That one day we will stand before him as stewards who have been entrusted with things that belong to him for the purpose of his kingdom. He's like, don't forget that. Like, live with that in mind. Understand stewardship versus ownership and use the things you have shrewdly. Like, think about it. Like, have a, have a conversation with your family or with your wife about your resources and go, how are we stewarding this? And, and if we believe this kingdom stuff to be real, it's got to affect us in here somewhere. So what do you guys think we should do? Like, at least spend like a moment thinking about it and, and developing a plan that says, I need to live with the end in mind, just like the other guy did. Just don't do it like the other guy did it, Right? This is what he's saying here. And then there's this well-known closing statement that we sort of looked at a little bit already. Verse 13, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It, it's, it's this idea, again, money is not bad. If you're here and you have money and you're hearing from me some guilt trip on you because you have money, listen to me say this as clearly as I can. Money is not bad. It's just a really bad God. And and so to make your whole life centered around money, to make all of your endeavors a pursuit of to, to have all your fears and anxieties circle around what if I or what if I lose or I need more of. Like all of those things to give it that sort of attention and to put it in a place where it really sits above God. And to put God in a place that's second where it's like, I'll be about the kingdom, but first I need to this, 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 that whatever the case may be. It doesn't work that way. You're going to end up serving God or you're going to end up serving money or whatever other God you put there, honestly. It could be relationships, sex, um, prestige, acclaim, fame, whatever the case may be. He's like, look, anything that you put equal to God is actually in your hierarchy has been put above God because it doesn't work that way. Either God is Lord of all or you've put God down here somewhere because you're pursuing something else up under here. But if God is Lord of all, then all of the other things, it means he's literally Lord of all. And so the things that we have, the resources we've been given, all of that stuff has been given to us that we might use them as tools to serve the king. Now, don't hear me say, therefore, give all your money away. That's not what I'm saying at all. We got a couple of really nice gifts for my daughter for her birthday gift. And she's a very generous little girl. But, but if she took all the gifts that I had given her and was like, thanks for all these gifts, Dad, and then turned around and gave all of them away, I'm not going to lie, I'd be pretty bummed. I'd be like, but honey, I, I wanted you to enjoy. I was trying to bless you as well. So it's, it's, it's not, there's such a thing as prosperity theology and if, if you've been around here for like a minute and a half, you know how much I hate it. But it's this, it's this mentality that God exists to bless you. And so if you live right, he's going to give you lots of money. And it's garbage. And how prosperity theology people, which is 90% of the big pastors you see on TV with the giant arenas and all that kind of stuff, like how they can do that, I have no idea what they possibly do with this text right here. Because it clearly pushes against that. 
But the problem is then you can pendulum swing too far and, and you take on what's referred to as a poverty theology that says to be really spiritual is to be poor. And you can be a total um, um, bad steward of God's resources by being that. Does that make sense? Like, you can be just as bad a steward as that guy because you're just wasting all the things that God has given you. The good steward says, knowing what I know about God, knowing what, that God is coming, knowing the scriptures, like I'm, I'm reading the scriptures going, how would God have me navigate these things? How do I navigate my life? And, and I, I hold loosely to the things that God's given me because I want to use them as an opportunity to further the kingdom of God, which in just a second, we're going to see what that actually means. Does that make sense? So you are not more spiritual if you're poor. You are not more spiritual if you're rich. All of those are just terrible descriptions. The idea for the Christian is that God owns everything, including me. And my job is to be the manager who manages his resources, stewards what he's given me, cares for it, knowing one day I will be in heaven before God and I'll give account for my stewardship of the things that he owns. I could have just said that and it would have been like a five-minute sermon. But that's it. You guys tracking with me on that? Now, real quick, we got to do this. So, so this is what he says. Now, remember, who else is in the room? The Pharisees. And they like money. So when they hear this, they do... They, it, the words we're going to see here in just a second actually describe a physical reaction. There's like a, a wrinkling of the nose of like... Ugh, like like they, they express their disdain, not just vocally, but physically. So in verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things and they ridiculed him, which is actually more than that. They just showed their disdain to him. And Jesus turned to them. He's never shy about telling them what he thinks. In verse 15, he said to them, You're those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is abomination in the sight of God. Now they would be thinking, We give our tithes. We do all this stuff. What is this guy even talking about? Oh, but he's saying it because he's poor. This itinerant rabbi who doesn't even have a home. Of course he's saying that stuff, but what does he know? And he goes, hey, 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 listen. You can justify yourself among men all you want. You can point to the tithe you gave on Sunday and say, see, I'm doing what I'm supposed to, but God knows your heart. God knows if you're being generous. God knows if, if you're trying to actually further his kingdom. God knows if you're showing mercy to those who are in need or if you're just really just living for yourself, doing just enough to get, get by, and even that is a way to make yourself feel better about yourself so you feel all nice and religious and spiritual. That might fool a whole lot of people around you. It does not fool God because he can see your heart and he knows how black it is. That's what he's saying there, which is, ooh. In verse 18, he says, And the law and prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it or strives for it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. What does he mean by that? Well, I'm still trying to go short, but we have 15 minutes. So I think I'm going to do the Ezekiel thing because I want you to see something. In Ezekiel 34, there's a prophecy now remember, the Pharisees of this day, they know the Bible better than anyone. And they know the law and the prophets. So what did the law say to Israel regarding wealth and resources and all these things? It said, hey, you're to be a place. I'm going to bless you, God says to Abraham and all through the law, really. I'm going to bless you, but through you, I'm going to be a blessing to people all over the place. I'm going to pour into you, 
and that's going to flow through. You're just going to be really a conduit by which you're going to bless people. You're going to take care of orphans. You're going to take care of aliens. You're going to take care of widows. And, and remember, at that time in the world, no one did that. It was, it was like this whole uh, survival of the fittest idea everywhere. Like the poor would just die. But no one was, no one was uh, as a nation, no one was trying to take care of people. No one was saying, hey, you should take the things that you have and use them to help someone else. And so God knew that, and God was setting Israel up to show the rest of the world that he's the one that wants to take care of the broken. He's the one that pulls in the orphan. He's the one that pulls in the widow and those that are kicked to the curb and those that are excommunicated, which is such good news because if he wasn't that, we wouldn't be one of his children, Amen? And so this is what he was trying to do. That's what the law said. And then Jesus also made this comment about the law and the prophets were until John, talking about John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached. In other words, so you had the law and the prophets, and now I'm preaching the kingdom to you. I'm here doing it myself. John the Baptist did it the same. And he's saying, listen, this stuff's true. It's essentially what he's saying. It is easier for the world to pass away, but God cannot lie. These things are real. These things are true. You know it. You've heard it. It's been given to you in the same way that money is given to a steward. What are you doing with it? Is what he's saying. So what did the prophets say? If the law said this is how you're to take care of people, what did the prophets say? In Ezekiel 34, there's this prophecy towards the shepherds of Israel. And we are not, don't worry, going to dissect all this. There's a, uh, you, you might have tons of questions about this. Maybe this is just good devotional reading homework for you guys this week. But we're going to read through this and listen to what the prophets even of old. Guys, they've studied, they know these texts. What are these prophets saying even to them in this? It says in verse 1 of Ezekiel 34, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding who? Yourselves. Should not shepherds feed sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Right there is the failure of stewardship. Right there is the, you were given, it's, it's kind of the old joke nowadays that you hear all the time, you had one job. You had one job. You were given sheep and you were to steward them. And instead, what did you do? You're, you're just taking it all yourself. You're becoming fat on stuff yourself. You're ignoring the sheep and you're feeding yourselves. Verse four, the weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the stray you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, with force and harshness you have ruled them. Now pause one more time. What's the parables that Jesus just told in front of all them? Parables like the prodigal son and the one who was lost coming back. Parables like the widow who lost the coin and celebrated after she tore the house apart trying to find that which was lost. Those are the stories he's just told. And here's the prophets, it's saying right here, like, you haven't taken care of the sheep, you didn't go looking for those who were lost, you didn't care about people on the outside, and the people that were there you had, you were harsh with them anyway. Like, you haven't done any of these different things. You, and then think of all the other stories that have been going on this whole time. Jesus would heal, and they would mock Jesus for it, and say, he's healing on the Sabbath, he's of the devil. And he's like, look, this was your job. That's basically what he's saying. 
I'm here right now doing what you guys were supposed to be doing the entire time. You've healed no one. You've fed no one. You've taken care of no one. You've sought after no one. And what has Jesus' whole ministry been? He's been doing all of those things exactly since he's been there. Verse 5. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill, or high hill, excuse me, that'd be weird. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to see, search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord God. Surely, because my sheep have become prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand. I will put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. Can you guys see all of this even happening? There's even a future element of this as we know now. There's no Pharisees running around like running the show anymore, right? The the job of ministering to the rest of the world has been taken away from Israel and given to the church now in this setting. Like all of these things have happened. But even more immediately, Jesus is on the scene doing these things now. And you're going to see that this is what he's talking about here in just a second. Verse 11, for says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and in thick darkness. And how many of us have stories about thick darkness, horrible situations in life when the grace of God broke through and saved us? Any saved sheep in here say amen? Amen. And I will bring them out from their peoples. I will gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. And there they shall lie down in good grazing land. On rich pasture they will feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the stray. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, says the Lord God, behold, I will judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. It is not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet for the rest of your pasture, to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet. We don't have time. Just keep reading. Verse 19, and must, must, and must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you've muddied with your feet. Verse 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns until you've scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And look at this. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. 
I am the Lord, I have spoken. In other words, I'm God, it's going to happen, better believe this. Now, does he mean David? What's he talking about there? That's a, that's a reflection, that's a point, which they would know this, back to the Davidic covenant, that even when David was there, remember at one point David said, man, Lord, I live in this palace and you live in this little tent. I should build you a house. And he wanted to build a temple and, and the Lord said to him, no, you're not gonna build me a house, David. I'm gonna build you a house. And in that D- Davidic covenant, he says, one is going to come from your lineage that will rule and reign forever. A descendant of David is coming. And this is what he's talking about. In other words, his name is Jesus. And they know this. They've been given all of this. And instead of thinking about the reality of God's word and about the reality of what they hear is coming, they're going, eh, I'm just going to keep living my comfy life. I'm just going to keep living my privileged life. I'm not going to think about the end that's coming. I'm just going to ignore all these things and I won't worry about it. Church, Man, these are strong words. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And we know the end. They didn't even have the rest of the New Testament yet. We know the end. And it's amazing. Amen? So knowing that, what manner of persons ought we to be? How are you going to steward? Like, can I challenge you to talk about that? Like to go... Knowing that in, knowing that I'm a steward and that God owns all things, that God is returning, maybe I should think about how I'm living. And you go, well, I don't have a whole lot of money, so that'll be a short conversation. Okay. Hey, husbands, listen to me a second. Men, let me talk to you. That's God's daughter that you're married to. If he cares about how we spend our money, what do you think he thinks about how we treat his daughter? So how are you stewarding her? Are you just like, eh, I can justify this. She's my helpmate. It's what the Bible says. So I'll just let her do all the things I don't want to do, and I won't kick in anymore, and I'll just, you know. Man, man I, I get conviction all the time. And there's not one who does it all perfect, but men, it's God's daughter. I'm guessing if we're giving account in heaven of the things that have been given to our steward, he's probably going to ask about her too. It's just a thought. Or your businesses, your friendships, and those have been gifts, those are gifts from God to be enjoyed, but to be stewarded and used for the kingdom. Remember, the shepherds then, they were called out, why? Because one of the things they didn't do is go get the ones that were lost. And how many of our friendships actually exist just for us, just so that we have something to do on a weekend, but we don't actually care that they're not actual Christians right now, and we're not going to take the time to have that awkward conversation. Why? Because they might think bad of me. Well, it's not about us. It's our job to seek the lost. And it's a huge thing. You're like, dude, you just got so heavy on us all of a sudden. I didn't. Jesus did. (laughs) It's just the truth. So my challenge to you is this. Knowing what we know to be true, to be true. How are you going to live? In North Carolina this week, back where I'm from, hurricane came. And I've been through hurricanes there before. It is not fun. But when they come, there's been enough, we, we have enough evidence that hurricanes are real so that when we hear the warnings, hurricanes are coming, you go to the store fast. 
And if you don't get to the store fast, there will be nothing left for you when you get there. Because when the power goes out, like it's just a nightmare after that. So all week, people have been going to the store. My mom lives st- is still there. All these people, everybody going to the store, buying all their things because they've been told by a forecaster that the worst storm in the history of storms were coming. Well, what ended up happening? Well, it weakened a little and then it weakened a little and then it weakened a little. Now there's, there's real drama, don't get, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't the end of the world. But Hearing that that was coming, people took that seriously and they made decisions even with their finances because of that end that they were told was coming. If we would do that with that, which sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, sometimes they turn, sometimes they don't, the storms, who knows? If we would do it with that, I'm just reminding you that that last verse in Ezekiel says, I am the Lord, I have spoken, which means it's really going to happen. So man, let's be shrewd about our lives. And actually think about knowing that to be true, what manner of persons I will be. I thought I was going to be early, done early today, Brent. I am. I have 17 seconds left. Let's all stand and pray. Lord, may we not leave this place with uh, uh, guilt or shame or burden, but may we understand the reality of your word and what you've called us to do, and I pray, God, that you would help us by your spirit to be good stewards. Help us to be generous people with your church, with the lost, with the needy. Help us, Lord, to be people who have a generous heart. Help us to be good stewards of our families. Help us to be good stewards of our children Help us to be good stewards of all the blessings that you've given us. And also, Lord, along the same lines, we should throw this in. Help us to remember to be thankful for them because they are gifts. What a privilege to be a manager for the King of kings and Lord of lords. What a privilege that is. And we didn't even get into the promises that you make for us down the road. Lord, our desire is to hear those words that you promise. Well done, good and faithful servant. So what we need is your spirit to help us to be faithful servants. I pray, Lord, that this word would resonate in the hearts and minds of people that are here this morning and and that it might stimulate discussion, that we might leave this place and think about how we're living with that end in mind, that we might consider that maybe, just maybe, there's some things we need to do different if this stuff's really true. And may you lead each person here to what you would have them to do, Lord. Speak, lead, and change your people. And may you use us to bring healing to a world that desperately needs it. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. I love you guys. Have a great weekend.